Onassis Foundation and Movement Radio present The Archipelago, a podcast series that follows ideas erupting from the abyss of human activity. Hosted by Yanis Orestis Papadimitriou. is not a solid terrain piling up on its own remains. It is the sum of every clouded memory and half-spoken word, forever in flux, always dissolving in the sea of history. It is an anarchic patchwork of thought and creativity, hidden behind grand narratives of actions. The minor overtaken by the major and erased from the record. The archipelago. The fluid territory of emerging thought is the recovered record. Following the murder of George Floyd, Alex Vitali, a professor of sociology in Brooklyn College, New York, and author of the best-selling 2017 book The End of Policing, became one of the most cited authors in public discourse on defunding or even abolishing the police. In this episode, Alex Vitali talks about the transformation of the meaning of crime over the last 60 years, the perils of extending the role of police to more and more aspects of our everyday lives, and how we could move away from policing towards relying on our communities. This is The Archipelago, a weekly show on Movement Radio. I'm Jan Soreswa Dimitriou. This episode was recorded in lockdown mode and edited by Stefanos Stadnidis. Alex Vitali, welcome to the Archipelago. Thank you so much. So if somebody asked you for a compact version of your argument, uh, what would you say? What is the main reason you think we should abolish the police? Well, we the compact version of the book is we don't need nicer police, we need fewer police. That people make the mistake of thinking that if we could just make police more professional, better trained, less biased, that this would then produce a more just form of policing. But in fact, the reliance on policing to address a whole host of what are essentially social problems is itself fundamentally unjust, and it is that scope of policing that we need to focus in on. Okay, so uh, you have traced this um, this tendency of how we came to think that police is the solution to every problem uh, back to the 1960s, uh, I think. What is it that happens then which starts to change policing? So, you know, there's a part of this story that's a couple of hundred years old and is about the origin of policing and its roots and things like colonialism and slavery and, and mass industrialization. But 
what happened in the 1960s and 70s was the advent of neoliberalism and austerity. In the face of, of globalization and the opening up of global competition, there was this fear of a kind of race to the bottom that no one wanted to look like Detroit. And so local, state, and federal governments used their power to subsidize the already most successful economic actors through through tax breaks and subsidies and deregulation in hopes that they would be so, become so successful on the international stage that some of that wealth would trickle down to the rest of us. But instead, what it has done is it has produced things in the United States like mass homelessness, mass untreated mental health and substance abuse problems, failed public institutions like schools. It has produced mass involvement in black market activity like drugs and sex work and stolen property. And these social problems rather than being directly addressed through economic policy, have been turned over to police to manage, not to solve, because no amount of policing solves any of these problems. Policing puts a lid on them so that that system of wealth redistribution rooted in a particular set of economic development strategies can keep rolling along. And it is this expanded scope of policing that has produced some of the most horrific abuses of policing, putting police in our schools, putting police in charge of mental health response, putting the police in charge of managing public homelessness, putting the police in charge of the problems of harmful drug use and sex work. So the movement in the United States is not about creating a kindler and gentler war on drugs, a more professional war on drugs, a less racist war on drugs. It's about completely rejecting the idea that the problem of harmful drug use should have anything to do with the police. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, was there any validity to that argument? I mean, um, after... Detroit was deindustrialized, for example. Uh, we know that vagrancy was its something much older than the 1960s. It's something that was, uh, uh, I think, was criminalized since the 19th century in many ways. But are there new behaviors that show up that are considered crimes after this uh, first wave of deindustrialization, after the introduction of neoliberalism? I think sometimes it's hard for Europeans to appreciate just how widespread homelessness has become in the United States. So there has always been vagrancy. And in fact, you know, a uh, hundred years ago, uh, police stations functioned as homeless shelters in places like New York and Baltimore, where new immigrants and, and recent arrivals who, who, who found themselves on the street could at least sleep in the basement of the police station. But what we've done now is that we've created this massive population of folks who are unhoused, and they appear in almost every community now. And and I've spent much of the last four years, with the exception of the COVID lockdown, you know, traveling around the country, and everywhere I go, there are homeless people in every neighborhood. And so rather than addressing the failures of housing and labor markets to address this problem, we have criminalized homelessness. We have created new statutes 
but also we've gone back and found old statutes and put them to new use. So now, for instance, in many parts of the country, it's actually illegal to share food with people in public. It's illegal to sit on the sidewalk. It's illegal to be found sleeping in a park on a picnic blanket. So that what were otherwise innocuous behaviors or behaviors that were committed by a very small number of people are now driving large numbers of people uh, into the hands of policing and our jail systems. Mm-hmm. You, you've written in your book, actually, you've noticed that uh, police was, from the start, was destined to actually suppress uh, labor organization as well as uh, the working class's uh, habits and morals, uh, in a way. Uh, I'm trying to understand, is this micromanagement of behavior, this micro-criminalization of behavior that you're describing now, uh, for example, uh, for it to be illegal to share food, uh, I'm trying to understand the difference. What is different from the, uh, let's say, policing the, the morals of the 19th century working class? Well, I think there are, there are many similarities. I don't want to overemphasize that. I think there's a big difference in the policing today from the policing we had in the 50s and 60s, let's say. But it is very true that as social problems emerge as a result of the economic organization of society, politicians have a tendency to address those problems through policing. So in periods of economic dislocation, like during the Great Depression, we see an intensification of the policing of the poor. So what happened about in the period, uh, you know, 100 years ago to 150 years ago, this is the period in the United States of mass European immigration. Mostly uneducated rural populations fleeing economic dislocation in Europe flood the American cities at the invitation of industrialists in the United States. And that influx of a new population produced social problems because there were important cultural differences, there was the exploitation that they were subjected to, which they responded to through unionization, worker militancy, but also um, sometimes property crimes, sometimes uh, violence amongst themselves under the pressures of poverty, etc. And so policing was tasked with managing those problems in an effort to shape a stable and compliant working class. Mm-hmm. And then? <laughs> well, and so what happens in the United States is that it, it, as we come out of the Great Depression through World War II, we have broad economic prosperity. Unionization rates uh, increase dramatically. There is widespread employment. The wages are going up. We create this massive middle class. Immigration actually is significantly reduced. And so those social problems go away. And so policing seems less intensive. Now, this is what I'm referring to is primarily, you know, the northern part of the country and mostly in reference to Europeans. But the situation for blacks in the United States during this period is very different. In the South, this is the period of Jim Crow. 
and police are playing a very direct role in enacting violence and extra legal control as well as legal legalized control of the black population to force them into second class status to deny their right to vote their right to own businesses their right to collectively organize as workers uh, so and in the in the west we have forms of colonial policing that are occurring this time targeting uh, long-standing Latino populations, the indigenous population. So policing is experienced in many different ways in the United States. Some, some of these new forms of uh, policing, I can't help but notice that they are extremely racialized. And the, the coincidence of when they come in uh, makes me notice that it's around the same time with the civil rights movement. Do they act as an answer to the civil rights movement? Well, so... I wouldn't say that they are reacting so specifically to the civil rights movement because before the civil rights movement, you know, policing was a key tool for for enforcing the second class status of African Americans. So it was police who would arrest people for trying to vote. It was police who were also members of the KKK and would participate in lynchings of people. It was, uh, you know, police who broke up, you know, uh, meetings of people trying to self-organize. When the civil rights movement happens, that conflict comes more out into the open. It's captured on newsreel footage. It's the stuff of nightly news. But that role of policing in subjecting African Americans to extreme violence and social control was not new. One thing that we're saying, though, is that, uh, you know, we see these provisions of the post-war Keynesian state, uh, let's say, turn away from welfare, and now they become crimes after the 70s or 80s or 90s, slowly. So, uh, is there any particular example that you can pick out of an aspect of welfare moving away from social care and becoming the responsibility of the police that you think is remarkable, one that could maybe explain in detail how this transition works? Yeah, so my friend... uh Forrest Stewart wrote a book called Down, Out, and Under Arrest about the policing of Skid Row in Los Angeles, the area where there was a very large number of homeless people, people living in in single-room occupancy hotels. A lot of social services were located there. And what he found was that there a, a, a kind of partnership develops between the police and the social service providers. Now, the social service provision during this time period is, it's there's a lot of social service providers, but they never provide the actual services that people need to get out of homelessness. So, uh, to just take a step back, During the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, what we had for housing policy was a robust policy of supporting the the building of public housing, providing large numbers of people vouchers in order to access housing in the regular market. And with the advent of 
the Carter administration a little bit, but really in earnest with the Reagan administration in the 1980s, which is when neoliberalism really begins to take hold. Uh, Margaret Thatcher in Britain and Ronald Reagan in the United States, those federal interventions into providing housing for poor people evaporate. And people are left to fend for themselves in the existing housing market at the same time that wages are declining and unemployment is increasing at the bottom end of the economy. And so what emerges instead of actual housing policy is a social services system designed not to really get people into housing, but to just reduce their negative impact on the surrounding community. So uh, Forrest points out how the police will try to avoid actually arresting someone if that person will agree to be taken to one of these social service sites where they are put in temporary housing, where they're given some meals, and where they're asked to engage in a whole variety of kind of self-help and personal responsibility modalities, trainings, programs, with the, the promise that they might get housing if they complete all the programs. And what he found is no one ever completes the programs, and even those who do never really end up in stable, permanent housing. It's just a revolving door that's not unlike revolving people into jails and prisons. The, what you're describing is actually um, a tendency for many decades in the 70s or 80s. It's a logic that goes into governance or, uh, you know, new markets that go into inc- incarceration or uh, policing and everything. But then the, the, in the 90s, I think this becomes a solid dogma. It becomes, a, a, let's say, an ideology uh, when the broken window theory comes into effect, which was implement, implemented most famously under Rudy Giuliani as mayor of New New York. Uh, and I'd like to ask you about this time, if you've studied it, about Giuliani's time and the bro- broken window theory. How did it work in practice? Yeah, absolutely. So I actually wrote a book about this called City of Disorder that is about the rise of this kind of broken windows-oriented politics. It actually uh, begins even earlier out in California. And what it does is it turns our historic understanding that crime is an expression of poverty and social inequality into a formula that says that crime is the result of moral deregulation. And what they mean by that is, in the wake of the liberation struggles of the 1960s and 70s, they claim that this created too much personal freedom for blacks, for women, for gay people, and that that created a kind of breaking down of traditional morality that contributed to widespread disorderly behavior on the streets. And that the solution to this was to re-regulate morality through intensive and invasive policing. That the police are there to explain to you right from wrong, to to criminalize any kind of morally reprehensible behavior. 
which included things like interracial couples walking down the street in neighborhoods where that was not considered socially acceptable. It included, you know, homeless people sleeping outdoors and people drinking in public. And the whole theory completely ignores deindustrialization, racial segregation, the changing nature of economic opportunities, and instead says the problems of cities are not deindustrialization, defunding of social services. No, the problem is too much personal freedom and that we need police to go around telling people what to do. Uh, you know, after uh, it's funny that uh, the, one of the people who implemented this, uh, Bill Bratton as a commissioner, uh, this, this is not a conservative approach per se. I mean, we saw back in 2014, if I'm not mistaken, Bill Bratton came back under uh, progressive this time, Bill de Blasio. Uh, and I'm also thinking that um, our f- former mayor here, a moderate liberal, he has spoken in favor of the broken window theory. And, and I'd like to ask you, Why did it become horizontally acceptable? I yeah. think this is the way most people think about policing nowadays. That's correct. A, a bipartisan, we say in the United States, consensus. But, it, but basically, it's become hegemonic. It's taken for granted that we need police to manage disorder as a strategy for revitalizing cities. And this is because... The elected officials of both parties in the United States have capitulated to austerity and neoliberalism. It's really, it's the, it's the rising hegemony of neoliberalism, that people have no alternative, no other choice but to subsidize the already wealthy and use police to manage everyone who's left out. And so the broken windows theory gives this patina of science and rational criminological thinking, but in fact, there's no science behind it. It was published in a magazine, not in a peer-reviewed journal. The research around it is, is incredibly um, inconclusive, shows it doesn't work, uh, but more importantly, it's ideology masquerading as science. And it was actively promoted by extremely conservative urban think tanks like the Manhattan Institute that are directly funded by hedge fund managers and billionaires. Yeah, I, didn't, I have to admit, I didn't know this, uh, this part about the broken window theory. I thought it was just, you know, conservative thinking. But uh, and why did this think tank fund it? What was the purpose? Okay, so the, the, the Manhattan Institute is one of these free market neoliberal think tanks that's devoted to applying austerity and neoliberalism at the urban level. So they are opposed to government intervention in housing markets. They're for tax cuts for the wealthy. They're opposed to social spending. They try, they're opposed to municipal workers having unions. And so the broken windows theory is perfect for them because it says that the problem of cities is not low pay, the inability of the free market to provide housing to people. No, no, no. The problem is is that people lack enough moral um, 
standing to do the right thing, and and the only way to get them to change their immoral behavior is to use police to harass and micromanage them. And I'm I'm trying to think this that uh, we're seeing police nowadays after over the last few decades um, from I mean from my personal experience the way I've seen them also but this is a matter of discussion everywhere uh, we see this you know this equipment getting bigger and bigger it's not only the presence that is more um, uh, let's say uh, that covers more activities as you said that some everyday activities change and are becoming criminalized we see that the people who are coming to check on us their 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 equipment is quite different now. 
now. It's a full-on armor nowadays. Okay, so I'm thinking, uh, what factors weighed in in the militarization of police? And do we have any evidence on how making officers' equipment more and more advanced affects their behavior? Okay, so yeah, police militarization is is definitely a problem, and it is about much more than just the equipment. You know, here in the United States, we've told our elected officials have told the police to wage a war on drugs, a war on crime, a war on gangs, a war on terror, a war on immigrants, you know. And so the this mindset that the police are at war with whole swaths of the American public has become this dominant idea. And so, of course, one aspect of that is going to be more militarized equipment. But it's also reflected in training and in in attitudes. And one of the things, you know, the most dramatic signs of this are when we see Uh, riot police outfitted with body armor and water cannons and shields and and tear gas and all the rest. And, you know, that represents a failure of the state. That, That, you know, one of the points I try to make throughout my book is that whenever we see a problem turned over to police, we should look for the political failure underneath that. So why is it that these governments can't seem to resolve important political questions without needing to send the riot squad in. That's a sign of a breakdown of basic democratic processes. And then to see an intensification of that political policing is a sign of the growing legitimacy problems the state is facing. And I think that's incredibly you know, abundantly clear in the case of Greece. So, so you have a, a, an image of Greece. You, you know what has uh, happened here. Uh, you, you have studied policing in Greece. In how extensively? Well, not very extensively, but I know that that this recent round of protests, right, is rooted in some of this expansion of policing, right? The decision to turn enforcement of social distancing over to police is a political failure. We made the same mistake here in New York early on, and it resulted in violence and a real crisis. And so fortunately, political leaders here made the correct decision, which was to get the police out of the public health business and to turn it back over to public health officials, community-based organizations, to do better public messaging. You know, one of the one of the dynamics we saw was that these elected officials from Trump to Governor Cuomo to Mayor de Blasio would like to, like to get on television, often all by themselves or with a few people behind them, and look very much like they were in charge. And they would deliver these stern messages about we're going to wear masks and we're going to social distance and we're not going to, you know, open our businesses. And then it turns out a lot of people don't trust them. You know, you had Trump saying people should drink bleach and stuff. So people don't all trust these elected officials. But when these elected officials were confronted by this lack of trust, instead of bringing in additional voices, decentralizing the messaging, they turned it over to police to enforce their tough orders. 
you know, one of the things we learned from the HIV crisis, the HIV AIDS crisis here in the United States was that having doctors and government officials go on television and wag their fingers moralistically at gay men about safe sex practices was not very effective because gay men didn't trust those people because historically those people had treated them very badly. What worked was actually hiring people from the community to go into community spaces as peers and do peer-to-peer education. And this is the strategy we need if we want people to engage in compliance around COVID protections, is not have big leaders make big pronouncements backed up by police power. You know, in Greece, we have uh, also huge problems with accountability, which is another aspect. I mean, there have been more than a dozen cases or so of police brutality that won in the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, But inside the country, there were no repercussions at all to the officers that acted in these occasions. And people demand accountability here. But you seem to believe in your book that accountability is kind of impossible. Why is that? because the police are doing what the political class has asked them to do. And as a result, the political class will insulate them from consequences in all but the most extreme cases. And this is what we consistently see in the United States and and, and very much in, in other places as well to varying degrees, is that first, the, the legal system is incredibly permissive about police use of violence. And second, even when police clearly go over the line, there's an unwillingness by the political class to truly hold them accountable. Judges, prosecutors, even juries will often refuse to just go along with what are clear violations of of legal rights, of of human rights, of international standards, etc. So, Again, the police are serving a a crucial central political function for political leaders. So the last thing those political leaders want is to undermine the power of that tool. And so they excuse police abuse because it serves their interests. You know, in almost every case of uh, police brutality we've, uh, I have encountered, uh, I, I've also seen some outcry about how the media have presented it. And uh, as it happens this week, one TV station even falsified the sound of a clip, uh, showing riot, riot police saying they'll kill the protesters, so as to make them sound like they were the victims. Now, uh, reporters were attacked also, uh, but they were unwilling to condemn it because this would break up their relations with, uh, you know, police liaisons with they need in their reporting. Now, how does the relationship between police brutality and the media work? Well, so, you know, in the United States, policing is a local matter. And in most, you know, locations, we have what we think of as, as local kind of growth coalitions that are made up of local economic elites, political leaders, and the media. And these actors basically share an overall outlook about how best to advance the interests of the city. And so the papers use that framework to evaluate how they're going to present various news items, who they have on the editorial pages, what kind of news gets covered. And so the media are as much 
relying on police to serve a particular economic vision as the political leaders are. You know, these news media primarily rely on commercial advertising, and so they're committed to a politics of growth that in the current moment is rooted in austerity and neoliberalism. So the police don't, the media don't really have an interest in fundamentally questioning police power and authority. Hmm. You know, they will sometimes cover things because it's just unavoidable and it's good for ratings and, and you know, the, the injustice of it is, is so undeniable. But in the end, they, they always come around to making excuses for, for promoting apologies, for uh, trying to redirect the conversation around to pointless superficial reforms without ever questioning the fundamental scope and intensity of police power. There is this uh, part from your book, this small segment from your book, this phrase, that uh, uh, when I read it again while preparing for this interview, it kind of struck me. You say at one point, uh, collectively punishing protesters because they are protesting while others are setting fires is an abridgment of fundamental rights. I mean, for, for me, it's so uh, the image of uh, you know police attacking protests is so uh, such a regular occurrence that um, you know it, I, I'd never, I could never think of it as an abridgment of fundamental rights. Uh, so I'm thinking, how is this hatred against protesters reproduced inside the police? Right. So if we think of policing, and, and just to say the rights issue that I'm referring to there is the idea of collective punishment, so that because someone somewhere has technically violated a law, police then use that as justification for punishing everyone who is engaged in that same political movement. Now, with if we understand policing, we, there's this kind of myth that we're told we're supposed to understand police as a tool for enforcing the law. But this is really a, a major misconception. Police exist to enforce order. Now, for the most part, the law also exists to create a certain notion of order, but these two things are not the same. The police will always choose order over what the law says. They are that tool of last resort to enact order. And, and that order, of course, doesn't benefit everyone equally. That order is rooted in systems of inequality and exploitation. So within policing, there is, by definition, a hostility to disorder. And political disorder is treated as the most hated type of disorder, the most threatening, the most dangerous, and the most unsightly and unseemly to them. So they have a natural tendency to view disorderly protest as fundamentally unjust somewhat irregardless of the content of the message, though police tend to favor more conservative right-wing political expressions over left-wing ones, in part because they view right-wing movements as correctives in an effort to create a new, more conservative notion of what order should be. So it is no accident that 
police just view demonstrators even when they themselves, the any particular demonstrator, may be in fact engaged in, you know, fairly nonviolent lawful protests as somehow always already guilty of something. Speaking of demonstrators, actually, uh, following George Floyd's murder and then swing protests, how popular do you think the demand to abolish the police is at this moment? Is it now a valid proposition in political discourse? Well, the, the, the main demand this summer wasn't really police abolition. It was defund the police, which is potentially consistent with an abolitionist framework, but isn't quite the same thing. So the, the, the primary focus of the movement right now is to try to redirect resources from policing to community-based interventions that will more effectively produce public safety than policing and without all the consequences of racism, brutality, and injustice. Now, that could lead to a larger abolitionist vision And some people are definitely articulating that and trying to imagine how to get there. Uh, and I would say that those conversations are very alive. They are being discussed in mainstream media at times, though often disapprovingly, and that there is a tremendous amount of on-the-ground organizing happening all across the country right now along those lines. Yeah, but, but this organizing, I think, comes from inside the community. It's not, an, um, let's say, an outside intervention. That's correct. That's correct. And that was true before this summer. You know, the reason that the protest signs this summer said defund the police and not more money for police body cameras or more implicit bias training was because there had been several years of on-the-ground organizing that wasn't getting much press coverage, but was working with communities to develop a deeper analysis about the nature of policing and its connection to austerity. And that is the same organizing that continues to go on, and now with more resources, more kind of popular sympathy to these ideas, and just a lot more political space. And so we see all across, all across the U.S. a growing number of cities beginning to invest in these non-police strategies, creating... Uh, crisis response units that aren't staffed by police that can respond to emergency calls around a mental health crisis or a substance abuse crisis, creating community-based anti-violence initiatives to support families, to reduce youth violence, uh, replacing school police with counselors and services for young people and their families. So this is very much uh, alive and, and moving forward. You know, the, the question I was hinting at, uh, actually, is that uh, it's very different. The, these same measures can be very different depends, depending on who starts them. I mean, I'm thinking that uh, you've said yourself in, in your book that uh, the police has been created and its role is now that of uh, as a tool of social control, let's say. And, and the difference is that even if we employ, if we got uh, community liaisons instead of SWAT teams, for example, or public housing instead of water cannons, uh, if someone else was bringing this on the community, it would still be a measure of social control, am I right? A more benign one, but still. 
It is possible, yes. And I, I try to talk in the book whenever possible about strategies of community empowerment and community control of these alternative interventions uh, so that it's the community making the decision what interventions they want. It's the community through community-based organizations that are delivering the services and ideally, you know, having boards and other mechanisms that make them accountable to local community members. I mean, this is not going to be perfect. The, the city governments will control some of these activities. And yes, there is a risk of policing by other means. But I think part of what we're doing here is that we're undermining a broader logic that says that the way we solve social problems is through coercion, punishment, and control. And once we break that down, I think that creates a lot more space for more transformative political interventions. And the next step would be to ask for um, social empowerment, I assume. Yes, and also things like taxing the rich, <laughs> right? Reversing these neoliberal transfers of wealth to the already wealthy, that we begin to think about what uh, decentralized economic development might look like, for instance, that, that benefits a broader swath of the population. You know, I'm thinking actually that there have been some, uh, uh, so as people should know what could go wrong with that and what to avoid while trying to go for uh, community organizing. Um, I'm thinking of these examples which appear like they are community organizing, but end up working, but end up working the other way, like let's say neighborhood watches, for example, in the U.S. or or. Even better, here in Athens, we had these. Uh, we are associating citizen patrols mostly with anti-migrant campaigns. Well, I think that the difference here, right, is that we're not trying to create community policing, whether it, whether it's police working more closely with the community or the community acting as police. That is not what we're talking about here, right? What we're talking about is a politics of care and solidarity. And I think that this is pretty clear in the on-the-ground organizing. This is about trying to lift people up, repair past harms. It's not about creating new systems of control and coercion.
Is this uh, the only somewhat legitimate uh, criticism of your work I could find? Uh, the, I found this one. I would like to, to address it, actually. It was on a piece by Matt Iglesias on Vox, uh, where he asks, what about violent, violent crime? Uh, and he also lays down some figures which show that more money funneled into police leads to a decrease in violent crime. How, how do you respond to this? Well, a lot of people have taken that article apart. Uh, those studies <laughs> don't really show that. Uh, there's a lot of research over many years that, that shows something very different. But also, just if we think logically for a second, these studies assume that there's no cost to those interventions and there's no other potential intervention on the table. So while policing might, in theory, be able to, you know, enact some reductions in violence, it does so at a huge cost, a financial cost, but also the burden that that apparatus of policing places on the communities that are policed. But finally, it doesn't ever consider whether or not something else might work better. And in fact, we have a lot of evidence that shows, yes, we have much better strategies for reducing violence that are more effective, cost less, and don't come with all those negative collateral consequences. Credible messenger programs, trauma counseling, street mediation interventions. You know, there's a lot of programs out there and a lot of research that shows these things can really make a significant difference in reducing violence without throwing millions of people into prison. Yeah, but, but what I'm thinking is that this criticism actually... They go for another question. I think what they're trying to do is pose a moral quandary, which is interesting, that in case we ever had to prioritize between safety and justice, uh, what would be the right thing to do? Well, that is exactly what they're trying to do, but this is, the this is a false choice. This is the same exact false choice we're given in relationship to expanding anti-terror uh, powers, right? We're told, oh, well, we have to ramp up the security state because otherwise, you know, the terrorists will win. But it turns out that these security state interventions don't work. And that low-level community interventions can be much more effective. And solving our political problems on a global stage are even better interventions. So these are always false equivalencies that are rooted in ignoring the possibility of other interventions. I was watching actually this interview by the father of one of uh, Anders Breivik's uh, victims. Uh, and he, he said, it was many years after the incident, uh, and the reporter asked him, uh, why did you not uh, uh, apply uh, your own Patriot Act here? And his answer was something along the lines of, uh, we're not going to become like them, <laughs> something like this. I think, uh, since you mentioned terror, uh, I think the Patriot Act, in terms of policing, might have brought even more uh, terror than it actually uh, was called to, uh, to counter, right? If we, if we yes. ask everything that happened. How have you seen this development over the last 20 years now, actually? Well, I think we should call it a war of terror, not a war on terror, right? The U.S. has enacted incredible violence around the world under this guise of protecting Americans. And somehow we've decided that it's okay 
to you know kill millions of people because someone harmed us you know this is this is the worst kind of revenge politics and it has done nothing to really stabilize the middle east or to create long-term security in the united states and in the process we've generated more enemies wasted trillions of dollars undermined our own democracy destabilize the possibility of you know multilateral cooperation on the environment the economy uh, regional security issues you know this is just an entirely misguided strategy and the last question i'd like to ask you for, for the show uh where should defunding the police start from who should pick it up and ask for it well i think it's most important that these be community-based movements that are rooted in the idea that the community has a pretty good idea about what the public safety challenges are that they face and what kind of interventions would be more effective than just relying on policing. And I think folks like myself, we have a, a role to play in supporting those communities by providing them resources to think through what kinds of alternative event, interventions might be possible. You know, a local community might not be aware that a community seven states away is experimenting with, you know, a domestic violence intervention or is trying to figure out a new approach to, to assist homeless runaways so that they don't end up in the sex work business. So communities have a lot of wisdom and local knowledge, but they also need to be in dialogue with, with researchers and, and, and organizations at a national and international level to inform that local work. <laughs> and on that note, uh, Alex Vitali, thank you for joining us at the Archipelago. Uh, it was my pleasure. Thank you.